as is customary, how about some lightheartedness here? Uh, a man recently reported, someone stole all my credit cards, but I won't be reporting it because the thief spends less than my wife did. <laughs> you want a cheap way to protect your home from burglary? Tack this note on the front door before you leave the house. <clears throat> Steve the python got loose again. Don't go in till I return. He's too big for one person to handle alone and he's hungry. <laughs> I'll be back soon. <laughs> so we are on the seven seas. We're continuing in our topic. Today we're at, um, if you don't have the little booklet, be sure and get one from uh, Selena and uh, notes are available. Everybody should have a set of notes for today. Today we're on C2, which is corruption. We did, we did creation last time. C2 is corruption, still in Genesis. In this case, we're in the third chapter. What I want to do today is cover more or less the life of Adam and Eve. So we'll step back a little bit into chapter two, actually the end of chapter one, the context of this can be seen in a current cultural dilemma that's in our world. And I'm sure you've heard this before, the problem of evil. It's a, probably a greater objection to God, to the existence of God, and especially the Judeo-Christian God, than even evolution is. The problem of evil, and it's got several different ways of express, expression. Uh, one is that if God is all-powerful and holy, why does evil exist? And so it can show up in other ways. Why did God create sin? It presupposes that God did. If man was created in God's image, why aren't we holy? And this is a reflection of a, what's called a pagan worldview of the creation, which implies that evil and good have always coexisted since uh, the, big, the Big Bang or whenever and that evil and good coexist today and always will. And you see the little yin-yang symbol there. It's a symbol for the marriage or the, co the coexistence of good and evil. The, the philosophy of the pagan worldview is that you can't have one without the other. You, you, you've got evil and good and they sort of go together. They're mirror images of the two. By the way, that symbol is in the South Korean flag if you've ever seen that flag. It's a common theme among uh, Eastern uh, religions throughout the East. Let's remember this before we get started, that Jesus Christ appeared in order to take away sins, it says in 1 John, and in him there is no sin. In him there is no sin. This verse helps us understand how God did not invent sin. He couldn't have invented sin. It's, sin is contrary to his character. It's contrary to him. And therefore, it's not, in God's, um, it's not in God's power, if you like, to create something like sin, which is opposed to him, himself. It's completely uh, foreign to his nature. But God is sovereign, and he permitted sin to enter this creation. There's no question about that, because he is sovereign. And uh, he did that so that he could redeem this creation from sin. Now, we'll say more about that in this lesson, so let's keep that in mind. The big why question, I like to ask why as we're going through the Bible. Let's remember that 
the whole scope of the Bible is the story of, cre of redemption from creation all the way to consummation and the final judgment and the life thereafter. What's happening here is that when evil came, it's the second step there after creation, the fall, <clears throat> the fall of Adam, in, in effect the fall of all creation, when sin entered creation. This plan begins unfolding in the Bible, this redemptive plan unfolds and it comes about at, at the uh, final judgment and then the uh, millennial, millennial kingdom and then the eternal state that is at the end of it. So. God is doing his redemption. We also have to think about this, that uh, many would say Adam wasn't a real person, that uh, he's just a myth or a figment of our imagination. Adam is mentioned 22 times in the Old Testament and nine times in the New Testament and always as a real person. So we do have this challenge of when are we gonna start to see Adam as a real person? And it especially comes into focus in this passage here in 1 Corinthians where Paul is presenting Christ and Adam as so like the two people that are most important when, we come, when it comes to the matter of sin. Adam brought sin into the world through his transgression and so it says for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus paid the price of sin so that the redemption could be possible. So the contrast is between these two. The difficulty would be, of course, that if Adam didn't exist, if he was just a figment or a myth, then what does this do to our salvation? So the challenge for us is then to look at this in that context. The creation of Adam. I've just pulled these three. I want to go quickly through this so we can get to chapter three, but... If you look at the creation of Adam, God said in chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And there he uses the word make. Then in the next verse he said, it says God created man in his own image. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, a living soul. So you have these three different verbs, and they mean different things, actually. Um, they suggest that there was purpose and that God had in mind a relationship because he's creating the man in his image. So this man would be able to have a relationship with God. And accountability, in other words, that within the relationship there would be familiarity and account, mutual accountability. So there's a lot that's behind these three words. But in that last one, particularly where it says God formed the man from the dust of the ground, notice there that he's at work. God is, it's, it's almost the picture of a workman carefully forming uh, this this man with his own hands, requiring careful attention to detail, requiring skill, requiring craftsmanship. And ladies and gentlemen, this, this to me gives great dignity, should give great dignity to us in our work. The fact that God is a worker, the fact that God is, if you like, seen here as a blue collar worker. This gives us great dignity, and sadly, throughout our world, you see people who 
their ambition in life is to avoid work or to not have to work or something. So we should take note of that, that God is a worker. Um, in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1, we didn't get to this last time, but it's so very important. This is the charter of the human race. It's like um, the mission statement, if you will. It's the mission statement for human beings. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. Notice Eve is mentioned here, female. So Eve was created on the sixth day. She wasn't created after day six. God blessed them, and notice that, God blessed them. This is, this is the first thing God wants to do, is bless them. And then he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, every living thing that moves on the earth. So here was the mission statement. They were to serve as, if you like, underlords, little l. They were to take care of this creation, all of it, they had charge of the creation, and they were to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth, and to be responsible in the management of it. It doesn't, uh, there's no way here you can say for it to be irresponsible in the mismanagement of it. That, is, that came with the fall. And unfortunately, the fall or the sin of Adam that entered the world has perverted everything inside. It's perverted man's nature. It perverted the creation itself. Um, by the way, um, the, the work that we do is made difficult by the fall, so everything is uh, falling, has fallen apart from God's plan, from his original plan. And uh, God instructed Adam to... Uh, Go to the garden and cultivate and create it, uh, cultivate and keep it. This word means to serve it, it to, be ser to serve the, the garden, to take care of it, to take note of it, to look after it, to what its needs are. And uh, this is another way in which we can use this as an example to approach our work. Um, I used to say in business, you take care of the company, the company should take care of you. So. It's an orientation, I think, that's important. <clears throat> and God commanded the man, saying, <clears throat> From any tree you may, of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree, of the, knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now, this last word, surely, last two words, surely die. It's actually the word appear die twice. It, it refers, it's, it occurs twice in a row, once in the infinitive, once in a regular verb. It's, it's like you would die, die. But uh, the Hebrew does this from time to time, and when, when it's uh, put this way in the Hebrew language, it's usually focusing on the, on the, um, on the act and not the, t uh, the, it looks past the time frame and look, focuses on the act itself. In other words, when this happens, you must die. Now, Adam had both a spirit and a body. We saw this in chapter two from a couple of slides back. He was spirit and body. We, in the last lesson, we talked about that you're not just an assembly of chemicals, but you have a, you have a spirit, you have a soul inside of you. 
And so it was, I think, an indication here that um, he was going to die spiritually and he was going to die physically. Now, the spiritual death happened uh, right away, but the physical death didn't happen for a few hundred years. In fact, uh, in Genesis, we learn Adam lived to the age of 930. So however old he was here, we don't know. Maybe this happened just a few days or weeks or a year or a few years after he was created. But at any rate, the spirit died at one point, the body died at another. Now, years later, Jesus would be explaining this in a little more detail to Nicodemus. And if you want to flip to John chapter 3, we can uh, look at this discussion, which I think is very interesting. Uh, John chapter 3, and let's start with verse 3. This is Nicodemus with the Pharisees who came to Jesus by night and uh, asked him uh, some questions about uh, who he was and so forth. And Jesus answered him and said in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's saying this to a man who's alive. This uh, Nicodemus is a live person. He's saying, unless you're born again. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born again, born of the Spirit. So there we have the challenge to be born again. And Jesus challenged Nicodemus in this way, letting him know he needed to be born again. And this is what the church is doing today. This is the Great Commission. This is our mission in life, is to let people know in our world that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, as it says in, in um, Ephesians uh, chapter 2 dead in our trespasses that we are walking dead. We're spiritually dead people. We're all born that way, thanks to Adam. Adam wasn't born spiritually dead, but he, he became a sinner by sinning. <laughs> we sin because we're already sinners. We're already born dead. That tree, uh, what do we know about it? You know, not much. It's a fascination. And uh, people can ask a lot of questions about it. Um, I, I think that we should take note of what it's called. It's not called the tree of good and evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good. And that word knowledge in the Hebrew language suggests a knowledge which is personal, experimental, uh, technical knowledge. Henry Morris says a scientific knowledge. It's a knowledge that you've really studied. It's a knowledge that you're sure of. It's, if I were to ask my wife, where are the car keys? And she tells, tells me they're on the dresser. Well, I know now that they're on the dresser, but if I had put them there and I was deliberate about it, I wouldn't have to ask her. I would know from experience, from firsthand. I wouldn't be getting it from any place else, but 
This is that kind of knowledge that you would know evil in an intimate way, in a personal way. And that's helpful, I think, as we look at this. It's not just knowing about good and evil. The implication would be Adam and Eve had the choice to ask God about evil, about good and evil. And God, I'm sure, would have been able to tell them. But the idea here is that they wanted the experience of it. They wanted to know it close up. And so the Lord, of course, we get to the creation of Eve. He said it's not good for the man to be alone. He will make a helper for him. And um, then in these two verses, 19 and 20, God gave names to all the cattle, to the birds, and so forth, and uh, he turned Adam into a taxonomist. This was another uh, job, job description. <laughs> Adam was a farmer at first, right? And now he's a taxonomist. So he's giving names to all these uh, animals and so forth. And that last phrase, Adam, for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. He, he couldn't find a suitable. So he, he became aware of his need. I think that was the exercise here that was going on. He began, he had already observed the male and femaleness of creation and realized that there wasn't a female for him. So God caused a deep sleep to fall on him. He slept. God took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh. Then he fashioned a woman. And here's another verb. We saw three verbs with Adam. And now here's, a, here's another verb, fashioned a woman uh, from the rib that he gave the man and brought her to the man. So with women, there's an additional step, you see, with a, with a woman. There's an additional step involved. And when Adam came to from his, uh, let's say, his anesthetic, <laughs> or from his, when he awoke from sleep, he said this, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This verse is in the, it's poetry. It's Hebrew poetry in the midst of all this narrative. Narrative, narrative, is for several chapters, it's narrative. Here's a poem. The first words out of Adam's mouth are poetry. And in Hebrew, frequently, when you have Hebrew poetry, it's also sung. Is it possible, maybe, that Adam enamored with what he's seeing, is singing her a serenade, you know? <laughs> Adam was no dummy. This was a very intelligent man. And here he is singing a serenade to his soulmate. Don't you think this is wonderful? I mean, this is really what you call love at first sight, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, so for this reason, it says, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two will be joined together, and uh, they'll, they'll become one flesh. We go on to, uh, to see that uh, God created this institution of marriage. He created this idea of one flesh, that they'll be joined together. And um, in um, Matthew 19, Jesus was challenged about divorce, and he quotes these two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis, as though, again, here we have the Savior, our own Savior, quoting from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as though they were literal. 
as though they really happened, and said, in conclusion, he makes two concluding remarks here. What God has joined together, let no man separate. He's concluding from these two verses that marriage is uh, permanent. It's an institution. It's a covenant. And uh, here we have God creating it. It's not a convention as our world would think. Our world would think that, well, it's a, an arrangement that we can make on our own and so forth. No, this is something God created. Um, I like the little heart up there. See, that shows these people are in love with each other, doesn't it? And uh, second, 1 Corinthians 11:7 makes an interesting observation that um, man is the image and glory of God. In other words, uh, God was, man was created special, a different type of creation than, than for the animals, even the mammals. Man doesn't belong in the animal kingdom. We're a separate and apart creation. Separate steps and separate methods of creation were used for Adam. This is, this is the final step. And but yet the woman was really the final step. She was taken from the rib of Adam. And so the woman is the glory of man. And uh, I don't think there's any question about that. It may explain why, gentlemen, we typically reach for the door and open it for the women. I mean, there's something there, isn't there, about women that are special? Uh, they, they are, they do reflect the glory of man. And I think we should take note of that. Uh, at the end of the day, sixth day, God saw that all that he has made, and behold, it was very good. Here he had the creation, and Adam and Eve in this garden lived in the lap of luxury. We didn't go through all the things that were in the garden, but it was a lush place. It was filled with precious stones, gold, all kinds of stuff. They only had one prohibition. Just don't eat of this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Too bad that they did. So in chapter 3, we can go to chapter 3 and start our lesson. <laughs> Sorry, I've been in the introduction the whole time here. <clears throat> um, let's look at chapter 3 of Genesis. Actually, I've got the first verse up there. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from the garden. Now the serpent, you can debate about who the serpent was, but in Revelation it talks about the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. I, I think it's clear that this was a, uh, this, the, the serpent was uh, inhabited or maybe it was actually Satan. But anyway, it, it, it was Satan or uh, used by Satan. And uh, the temptation was in the form of a question. He didn't say, uh, you must do this. I'm telling you to do that or whatever. It's just a simple question. And in the, it's the same way today, we're, the temptation is no different for us today as it was then to doubt the word of God. Did God really say this? And that's the, he's calling her into, he's calling her into evaluate. Well, yeah, maybe he did, but what do I think about it? And there again, we went through this in the first uh, series, in the first lesson on this series about what do I think about God's word? The challenge for us is to believe it is to believe it. And so that was where apparently she was vulnerable. And uh, so she took 
Let's read on in chapter uh, 3, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it or uh, touch it, for you will die. I don't know that God said you shouldn't touch it, but, you know, she said this. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you uh, eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And so we see that's where it happened. This is where the sin entered the garden. And here comes God, and he called to Adam in verse 9. He says, where are you? Now, what was the answer? What did he What was, what did uh, what did Adam answer? We see it in verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. Yeah, well, that's kind of an honest answer in a way. Um, and then uh, the next question, also to Adam. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Ah, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. In other words, the, the woman, it was her fault. Here was his soulmate who he'd been serenading. Uh, it's her fault. But you gave her to me, it was your fault. <laughs> you see all the blame going around here? And then to Eve, he asked one question, what have you done? She says this, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You know, these questions invite honest answers, and for the most part, they gave honest answers, I think. But, but God is a fair judge, giving the guilty people an opportunity to speak. You know, the world has this view of God as judgmental and harsh, and yet here is God, loving God, who wants to hear from them. He already knows the answers. Um, he listens, he gives them their day in court, he's seeking actually a repentant heart. If you see that uh, passage in Second Peter, God desires all men to come to repentance. I think he was looking for repentance, but uh, he was asking them, he was asking them, and it's a reflection to me of, I wonder how things will be on Judgment Day. Well, the Lord uh, uh, certainly will be fair, and the indication is he's pretty fair here and giving them a chance to speak before he passes judgment. Um, the immediate effects of sin, of course, we see this in verse seven. They immediately became aware of their nakedness. They were self-aware, self-centered. Prior to that, it, it's pretty clear that uh, they were uh, more concerned about the other. They weren't concerned, they weren't worried about themselves. They made coverings to hide their nakedness, so it 
now perverted their relationship, their per relationship with other human beings. And this is what sin is doing now. It's perverting man's relationship with other people. And it's also corrupting man's relationship with God. Now they've got the omniscient, all-knowing God that they're trying to hide from. That makes no sense. <laughs> so here's a big theological error they're suffering already and uh, thinking it's possible to run from God and sin and hide and keep it a secret. Now we know better, but you know, this is just one of the many aspects of the corruption uh, of their relationship with God that went under, that, went, that happened. Throughout the Bible, we're given help as to God's nature and so forth. We fall on creatures so that we may understand about God's nature Adam and Eve had it up close and personal up until the point they sinned. Uh, verses 13 and 14, God said to the serpent, and notice this is a judgment now coming. God starts with the serpent. Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field on your belly. You'll go, the, you'll eat dust the rest of your, day, your life. He, it's a personal condemnation of Satan. I don't really understand exactly what Satan was before this, but clearly it's a, uh, he's doing something to him uh, that is going to make him look cursed. <clears throat> and uh, then he says this to him. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head. You'll bruise him on the heel. Folks, you've, I'm sure you've heard this before in this church. This is the first gospel. It's actually the gospel. Uh, not mentioning Jesus Christ by name, but uh, it's talking about the fact that Satan is going to uh, have a victory over uh, the Son of God who would be the seed. We're told this later in the New Testament that Christ is the seed who came. But that seed is gonna bruise you on the head. It's gonna be a, it's not going to be a fatal wound to the son, to the seed, however, He's going to bruise you on the head. And so, here was the first gospel. Noticed it was given to Satan. It was given to Satan, but there were Adam and Eve standing nearby listening to this. <clears throat> the gospel means good news. So it was good news to them. To Satan, it was terrible news. And it's still the case today. The gospel is good news to us, who, but to those who are perishing. Uh, it's not good news. To the woman he said, I'll greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you'll bring forth children, yet your desire for your, will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. You see God's judgment upon Eve involved frustrating her relationship with her husband. Um, and the, the, it's, it's not childbirth so much as conception. Uh, in pain you'll bring forth children your desire will be for your husband, but he'll rule over you. This conflict in marriage is, is something that, and it also seems to revolve around conception. There are other issues, but uh, conception is one of them. We see throughout the Old Testament, in fact, you, you can't get very far into Genesis and you're already starting to see um, women with unable to conceive. And so the husband goes out, remember um, this started with Abraham and uh, we see it, Jacob and so forth, that went out and got concubines and so forth. They had, and all the problems that this brought into the family and the frustrations in marriage that it created. 
Uh, we have birth control today, ladies and gentlemen, to help couples regulate their childbirth, the, the conception issue. But honestly, this doesn't solve all of the problems and in many cases, the medical profession isn't able to help people to do this. So it, it continues to be an issue. And the judgment on Adam, of course, is that um, he's going to have work in toil and sweat and before it was a pleasure. It, we don't see toil and sweat in the garden until this point. <clears throat> Thorns and thistles, it's going to grow. Um, you'll eat the plants of the field. <laughs> you'll get so hungry, you'll eat those plants. By the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread until, until you return to the ground and so forth. It's gonna be difficult to make a living and how well we know about this. You know, It's hard enough when you do everything right at work, but you're an imperfect employee, face it, but you're working for a boss who is imperfect. A company that is imperfect, you've got people above you and below you at work on the, on the uh, chain of command who are imperfect. It's perverting, sin is perverting literally everything. So here was a big problem. Were Adam and Eve saved? I think they were. I think they were, I think they were saved. Um, you see in verse 20, Right after this, first thing Adam, the first thing that uh, Adam did was he called his wife's name Eve. That word means living. He called his wife's name Eve. Wait a minute, Adam, you were just told you were going to die. What's this about living? Um, Adam seemed to rightly interpret what God was promising here in verse 15, the first gospel that the hope of mankind's future would be this seed that would come through Eve and uh, later revealed in the Bible to be Jesus Christ. But in spite of the sentence of death, God would grant them life beyond death. And so I think Adam, as intelligent of a person as he was, saw this. And he named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And he knew that through her would come the Savior. Um, God vindicated, I think, this step was a vindication in verse 21 when God made garments of sin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. To me, this, this gives validation to their response. And notice it, it was a statement of faith. It was a statement of faith on Adam's part. Now, and by the way, faith is, a, faith is not a blind leap. It's based on a promise of God, is it not? And we have the promise of God in the Bible. So it's the same. People have been saved by faith from Adam all the way down to the youngest person in this church who has accepted Christ. People are saved throughout all, all different dispensations of biblical history, of world history by faith. Verse 22, the Lord said, Behold, the man's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now he stretched out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out of the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So there's a reference to the Trinity, a clear reference. We had one in the first 
part of Genesis. Now we have another one here. <clears throat> the Lord God said the man has become like one of us. Um, and although created in God's image, Adam and Eve would no longer be really be like God uh, on account of the corruption of sin. And um, sin had rendered them in a state of eternal corruption. The only outcome really could be um, judgment and death. God determined they should not continue to live in a perverted state. I don't know what this might have looked like, but you know, the only, the nearest thing I can think of would be something like a zombie or something, something so horrible that uh, it would be unacceptable. It would be heinous. And uh, so in a way, death was better. By faith, Adam and Eve believed in a future redemption. Uh, evidence of Adam's faith was seen in naming his wife Eve living. And, Adam, and Eve demonstrated her faith too. I think in verse uh, one of chapter four, where she named her firstborn Cain, uh, he, it, she, named his, she named her firstborn Cain because he was from the Lord. He was from the Lord. Or in effect, he was the Lord. He was, a, he was her going to be her savior. In effect, is what she was saying. She believed in that promise. She really, she thought her first child, son, would be that. So they were expelled from the garden. We know the story. The tree of life could keep them alive, but uh, that was unacceptable. Therefore, it was necessary to deny them access. The implication is they would have liked to stay and, uh, and eat that tree, but God had to drive them out. There's two verbs here, drive them out from the garden and cast them out of the garden by force. These are very strong verbs in the Hebrew language, very strong verbs. It's as if they were very unwilling and almost tugging in, uh, doing everything to avoid leaving, leaving the garden. Uh, the picture of this is uh, heartbreaking in that God had created this couple. They were the glory, it was the glory of God, this couple. And now he was having to cast them out of this garden where he had created and stationed cherubim to prevent them from coming back with swords. Well, the tree of life disappears. It doesn't come back until the end of Genesis, uh, to the end of the Bible, end of Revelation. And we'll get to this on C number seven, the last C in our series. And I can't wait to, to get to that and talk about a little bit more about this tree of life. <clears throat> um, the aftermath of the fall is this, and we live in it. This is our world today. Just take a look at the world out there and, and take note of this. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the creation really wants to be uh, redeemed from sin. Our, our world is a sinful place and the creation itself seems to be aware of it, uh, whether it's the animal kingdom or whether it's something inanimate. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers pains of childbirth together until now. Boy, it does. And if you look at nature, you look at the animals, you look at any aspect of the creation and just realize it's damaged too 
we're damaged, we're doing a lousy job of, of, of managing it. Our perfect creator God has now, is now working with fallen mankind and a damaged creation. This is also part of the redemption of Christ and it has yet to be fulfilled. The part of it today that is fulfilled is spiritual rebirth. The part that Christ was calling Nicodemus to, to be born again, and this is the call that we're doing today, is for spiritually reborn. The day will come when we'll be physically resurrected. So instead of good and evil existing from time beginning till time eternity, what we see in God's redemptive plan is between the creation and the fall, uh, a period of good. There was no evil here in that period of time. And then people want to say, well, you have to take the good, the good with the bad, or yes, dying is part of living, or it's part of life. No, it really wasn't. There's, in fact, there's something horrible about death. And so it's, ne it's really not part of life, God, not, not the way God intended and created it to begin. But from the fall until the judgment, we do have evil and good in our world. We have this mixture. It's an abnormal, abnormality in God's eyes. And at the judgment, good and evil then are going to be separated forever. And good will then become the new normal. The evil will be confined to the lake of fire forever. So here is the redemptive plan of God. And notice it's all based on the work of Christ on the cross. His work on the cross provides for all of this. It includes us personally. It includes the entire creation. Ephesians 2.7 says that in the ages to come, God intends to show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Think about it. This is going to go on forever. And God is going to show riches of his grace unfolding throughout eternity. So the legacy of sin. Sin isn't a thing. It's not a system. It's, it, if you look at the yin and yang thing, it's, it's, it's not that at all. It's not, it, it doesn't belong in that category. It's not a body of behavior or a body of knowledge or something like that. It's not systematized in any way. It's just anything that rejects or opposes God or his word. It could be a million things. Uh, absent the experience of sin then, what would we know? What would we really know? about God's holiness. If, we had, if there had never been any sin, Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, things had continued, would we know really about God's holiness? Um, I think as sinners we really have a sense of His holiness because of our unholiness. Uh, what about God's judgment? The fact that God will step in to intervene and make things right. God's grace and mercy, what would we know about God's love for us if it weren't for grace. Frankly, these things came about because of sin. I mean, the, the manifestation of them came back. God was like that to, be, to start with, but now, now that sin has entered our world and redemption is available through Christ, we really have kind of an understanding of this. We really can see it. And here, I love this passage because I realize in this passage you have the, the whole scope of 
the plan of redemption, the little chart we just looked at from creation all the way to consummation, you have it all right here in this passage. It says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, there's our sin, and there's death right there, made us alive together with Christ. <clears throat> See, there's our being born again, born again in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is talking about our resurrection. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. You see, God is showering grace and kindness on his creation all throughout eternity and notice how it ends it's all to the glory of God so really is this seven C's about the redemptive plan of God or isn't it really about the glory of God yeah I think the latter is a little bit more true it is about the redemptive plan of God but it is to his glory shall we pray Lord, we do praise you and we thank you for your holiness, for your judgment of sin, the promise of salvation, the grace and mercy that you extend to every human being and the love which you have for us. Thank you for these treasures that we have, Lord, and these promises that are eternal. We pray that we would be faithful stewards of this word, that it would really mean something to us and that we would honor you and serve you and glorify you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.